Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology for the arts inclined. I'm Omnic Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week we're mad as hell and we're going to be very calm and reasonable about it. Also, Battlefield Hardline made big promises, Microsoft forgets how to count, and Square Enix takes us on a road trip. But first, Gamergate won't die and now they're starting a lobbying firm. So, a couple weeks ago, we spat some fuming rage about this internet mob. Yeah, we even got some great hate tweets about it. Hey guys, what's up? Anyway, so one of their more civilized activities, the ones that don't involve sending death threats to women, is stopping companies from advertising websites that are anti-Gamergate. For those who don't still have the night shakes, Gamergate is supposedly about anti-corruption in games writing. Begun by a breach of a woman's privacy and harassment to anyone who criticizes them. So, who's against Gamergate? Well, turns out most of the internet. All right, so they're calling the project Disres- like something Disrespectful Nod, um, which is, I mean, that's not a great name, guys. It's not a great name at all, but they also call it, they called it Operation Disrespectful Nod, which is awesome because, I like, are they a military group? <laughs> yeah, that is a bit, I mean, that's a bit weird to, to go out of their way to do that. It's really strange. Anyway, on August 28th, in the middle of the Gamergate storm, Gamasutra's editor-at-large, Lee Alexander, wrote a piece about how the gamers are dead. The word gamer is dead. Gamers as a culture is dead. Her article characterized the Gamergate movement as the last misogynistic gasps, gasps of a gamer culture and urged developers to ignore it. Which, I mean, I, th- I think that's fair. In our last piece, we went through that. We thought yeah. like it was a fairly reasoned argument. Mm-hmm. Um, in response to the email campaign from the Gators, uh, Intel pulled its ads from Gamasutra, which the which uh, which ads had been there for a few months before the article had been published. Yeah, the the, the this email campaign, by the way, happened. Last night, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is when all this happened. Uh, Intel spokesman Bill Calder said in an official statement, Intel has pulled its advertising from website Gamasutra. We take feedback from our cu- customers very seriously, especially as it relates to contextually relevant content and placements. There's also a statement in there about being nonpartisan, um, of which I don't really think this is a partisan issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so quick background. Gamasutra isn't a consumer publication. Its target demographic is developers and artists in the industry. Their parent company, UBM Tech, also runs GDC, the Games Developers Conference, and used to publish Game Developers Magazine. This doesn't mean that consumers shouldn't read it, of course. It just means that having ads pulled affects more than just a site and its writers. It affects developers who use its resources. There's a lot of job-finding things, a lot of data, a lot of blogs there that developers get a lot of help from all the time. One of the the key features of Gamasutra is... uh, the, a lot of blo- a lot of developers do have their own blogs there. It's an avenue for them to kind of share their experiences. In even indie developers go up there and kind of share like, okay, here's how I we here's how I managed to make this product out of like so little money imaginable. Mm-hmm. And having that resource is really valuable to people because it kind of teaches maybe smaller lessons that people trying to get into trying to figure things out won't be able to get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so if Gamergate is essentially a campaign about weeding out corruption in game journalism. Um, then why would you try to hurt developers? Yeah, it's really just utterly confusing. Gamergate, in case you don't know, is a ball of impotent hashtag sexism masquerading as an anti-corruption movement, which is what is so mind-boggling about this, that really what it is now, this is not about a specific hatred for Lee Alexander, though I can't imagine many of them lack it as, you know, misogyny, et cetera, sexism in the industry, but... Also, she's one of the most foremost writers. She's been writing against this kind of harassment and right. for ages now. She, she is generally the enemy of these kinds of people and a friend to sane, rational individuals. But the the thing the thing about this is that really what it's come down to is that this is an opinion they don't like because this is an anti-Gamergate opinion. And thus, they want to censor it by removing its ability to be published by removing the money from it. Which is... This is so crazy because the idea is that they want to get anti-corruption because supposedly these people are hushing the. It's like the it's like Nixon's silent majority. Mm-hmm. Like oh, every everyone really agrees with with this idea that women belong in the kitchen. They're just not saying it because they're way way more polite about it. Right. Of course, Gators took to Reddit to celebrate and made sure to link their fellow conspiracies to other sites that stand against the Gator cause and their advertisers. And reading through that thread, I wanted to punch through a wall. I mean, I think that, to be fair, Daniel, you have wanted to punch through a wall almost every time we've encountered Gamer Games. It drives me crazy. It's, I actually I don't think I can control it anymore. If I see somebody who subscribes to Gamergate in person, I might have to beat them up. And I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a terribly violent man. Look at me. I'm also mini- you can't see this. I know my voice sounds like a Herculean Adonis, but I'm a small man. You could like a squirrel could get its hand around my wrist. Yeah, I mean those slacks 
can be very intimidating, but you don't wear them in a way that they are, right? At least not right now. I'm not no, physically certainly. friend. These the boots are not steel-toed. No. They're a little grimy. I haven't shined them in a week. I shine my boots. It's just, it's really infuriating. Do read Lee's article. It's, it's, it's a really interesting article, very, you know, fascinating statement that I personally agree with. And really, you know, I think we talked about it in the show a little bit. But this this kind of response, it's hurting Gam, you know, it's hurting Gama Sutra, which is really important, I think, to the industry at large. It's also it's it's quieting diverse voices. If really what they're looking for is to to stop corruption, then they should be encouraging the more diversity of voices right. at all possible. Um, the idea that they, that somehow they are corrupting games journalism by or corrupting games by adding um, politics to it has is always been a facetious argument right I wonder exactly how much Intel knows about this I imagine they just got a bunch of just you know a ton of emails from zombie accounts for the most part or but, like they just got a bunch of emails from angry people and they have no they don't have time to yeah, keep they up don't, on this nonsense they're not, they don't care and it's one of those things just like I'm sure if somebody explained it reasonably and rationally they wouldn't have pulled the ads because what do they care yeah um, but in kind of in the spur of the moment they definitely look a little bit bad right now they look like they didn't do their research which yeah. I I think like I don't think they actually care about Gamergate. I think oh, they no. just this is a, this looked like a PR an easy PR move for them. Right. And I I think in hindsight they probably should have checked what they were supporting. Right. I have a feeling we'll be seeing those ads back there reasonably soon. Yeah. Even because companies forget pretty fast. Like next time they need an ad, they'll put it there because it's a good place to put it. Speaking of uh, amazing and terrifying. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, for for those listening, I live in I live near Toronto. I don't live I don't have the privilege of living in Toronto like Daniel here does. I live in Vaughan. Yeah, but I mean Vaughan is basically Toronto, it's Toronto North. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 Toronto, but like with with in, in italics. Like uh, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say Tor- <laughs> you said the beginning of that, and I thought you were gonna say Toronto, but with Italians. I was very <laughs> very confused and about to be offended. No, that's that's like West Vaughan. That's that, not, yeah, that's uh, Woodbridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um. Anyway, so I'm from Mississauga, which is known for a very, 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 very low crime rate and a mayor that's mortal. But also, uh, apparently it turns out that two of four members of an international uh, hacking ring have pled guilty to charges of hacking various game companies, including the ringleader who apparently lived in my hometown. A 22-year-old from your hometown who went to U of T, who who was going to U of T during all this. Uh, Between 2011 and 2014, hackers David Pokora, 22 of Mississauga, a 28-year-old man from New Jersey whose name was protected by the courts, uh, Nathan Leroux, 20 of Bowie, Maryland, and Austin Alcala, 18 of McCartsville, Indiana, stole secrets from Valve, Microsoft, Activision, and the U.S. military. That last one feels like the the most important on that list. Just Just a... Tiny, tiny bit. Uh, also involved in the case, Australian man named uh, Dylan Wheeler, who's believed to be an, a hacker who went by Super Day. Allegedly, this man sold a counterfeit Xbox One dev kit built from specs stolen by the hacking ring, who called themselves the Xbox Underground, uh, and uh, sold it on eBay for $5,000 before launch. He then bragged about it to Kotaku, which I think is a fundamentally dumb decision. <laughs> they stole information from then unreleased games, uh, Modern Warfare 3 and Gears of War 3, the Indictment describes their stealing information from both Valve and Zombie Studios, the latter of which was working on a helicopter flying simulation for the American military. Yes, they found out about this when they obtained military login data and stole thousands of dollars worth of confidential data. Yeah, the so this is where the U.S. military part gets involved, yeah. right? The, yeah, yeah, this is the part where they stole confidential information, like military secrets, and they're in like terrible, terrible trouble. I believe how they got caught is one of the people whose name is protected by the court started leaking information to the um, to the uh, to the uh, police and to the mil- to the FBI as a plea de- as a plea bargain, um, and now they all kind of have plea deals. They've all pleaded guilty. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so the guy in charge is a Mr. David Pokura. Um, he's being tried in Maryland, but may have be transferred back home to serve his sentence in Canada. Uh, also, there's a story in there about how Pokora and Alcala, along with two unnamed thieves, broke into Microsoft's Redmond offices using stolen access credentials and made off with three Xbox dev kits two months before launch. Oh, that's insane. That's actually insane. And you really have to wonder, I, like... And I don't mean to cast aspersions on this gentleman, but I've seen a photograph of him. He doesn't really look like a person who'd be working at Microsoft's Redmond campus. No, I mean he doesn't have your slacks. That's for sure. Um, the <laughs> he it... looks like a he looks like a U of T computer science student. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to generalize, but you know they're a meek bunch. Yeah. A- anyway, speaking of surprises, it looks like a video game might work at launch this time. Wow. Um, <laughs> I know it's shocking, right? I can't believe it. 
EA's Battlefield games have had a really sordid past of being nigh unplayable at launch. Uh, generally speaking, this is sometimes due to in-game bugs and network issues. Uh, sometimes both. Yep. Battlefield 4 was a disaster, but before that, Battlefield Bud Company 2's dev team underestimated the stress on their servers. Battlefield 3, shortly after, experienced a record online users they weren't ready for, and Battlefield 1943 launched without enough servers to play that game, rendering it so laggy you actually couldn't shoot anything. Meanwhile, Ian Millam creative director of Hardline, Battlefield Hardline, wants to buck the trend. In an interview with Game Revolution at uh, the Tokyo Game Show, Millam claims that the game will be working just fine at launch, aside from the reeking societal issues. According to Millam, Visceral has been working on Hardline since before Battlefield 4 came out, um, and they've been close. They've been working closely with DICE to nip any problems in the bud. Considering DICE are the ones who releases the unplayable messes in the first place, maybe they aren't the best ones to help. But also, considering that they, they look like they both use the same engine and it's just the same map it's just mm-hmm. different kinds of map styles yeah i don't think that this is I, I think that if so long as the changes have been implemented to battlefield 4 it doesn't seem that hard to implement them in um mm-hmm. bat- and battlefield hardline the the thing is uh that game has i mean it was unplayable at launch but according to people now battlefield 4 seems to be mostly okay these mm-hmm. days it hasn't completely fallen apart yeah millimix anticipates a few hiccups considering they're launching across five consoles simultaneously but points to the successful beta as proof that they know what they're doing quote we already had one very successful beta we're going to have another on every platform we ship on we take sh- shipping a working game pretty seriously so yes the game will work uh, Hardline launched in 2015, and I don't trust them either. Don't worry. <laughs> like, yeah. how is it news that a game works when it comes out in 20, what, 2015? Yeah, no, it's the idea that we can't have a game functioning at launch, that there needs to be, like, a several, a week or so, or months in Battlefield's 4Ks of updates in order to compete with the situation is crazy. In some situations with, like, an MMO, it kind of makes sense. For instance, MMOs is that, like, if they actually bought the servers in advance of the players arriving, it's so expensive to have it for that extra time that it's not, it's more cost effective to just have the servers crash when they realize they have too many, buy the extra servers later, and just have that short moment of downtime. But EA just seems to be unable to even make that transition. Like, yeah. it's Sims, the, the, the SimCity collapsed. It would be nice if games worked on day one. Yeah, it would be nice if there weren't day one patches all the time. But, I mean, I understand that one at the very least. Like, as long as it's not... Games have day one patches because there are bugs you miss, you know, when it's shipping off to the factory. Although I did like the Medal of Honor patch, but apparently was almost as big as the game. Um... (laughs) One of the jokes was that one of the things that was patching in was the single player. Um, it was patching in game. It was patching in content. It was actually patching in guns. Before that, the game didn't have guns. <laughs> it just had the concept of shaking hands. Yeah, it was a really friendly game. It was the uh, Tanya Wanya teens of uh, first-person shooters. Speaking of weird metaphors, um, the Windows Seven Eight Nine. Yep. That's, that's literally the joke on everyone. I mean, if you if you've been paying te- te- attention to technology at all, this is the news. There is a new Windows Ten. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a new Windows. Windows. It is Windows, Windows 10. 10. That new Windows is Windows 10. I'm serious that time. <laughs> Windows 10 represents the first step. Do you guys need a sec? You guys are... <laughs> that wasn't scripted. That was just a thing we did. <laughs> uh, it is. We do this every once every uh, every full moon. And when I am Tom Max. He is Zamat. One of us only tells truth. The other only talks about Square Enix. <laughs> You, 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 it's hard to tell which one's which sometimes. Anyway. Final Fantasy VII is terrible. Um. <laughs> um, so anyways, in Microsoft's continued efforts to destabilize the accepted levels of counting, um, it turns out they announced Windows 10 this week. You didn't miss 9. You aren't waking up from cryosleep. This isn't a really boring dream. We promise you they just don't have Windows 9. Windows 10 presumably named because they partly wanted parity with OS X and Windows 1 was taken is built from the ground up to run for every platform Microsoft uses. That is to say it's the same OS on phones, tablets, computers and TVs. Yeah. So they're completely they're getting rid of Windows RT, they're getting rid of they're getting rid of Windows Phone and it's from here on in it is just going to be Windows 10 all the time. Turn on your screen, Windows 10 is just banging. I mean jamming. <laughs> Uh, it looks a lot like Windows 7, presumably because plenty of non-tablet-using customers were kind of put off by Windows 8 and its unusableness with a mouse. Uh, Windows is also hinting that the uh, that an update to the Xbox One will Windows 10 it, basically. The, 
I mean, that makes sense that that's what they did when Windows 8 came out was mm-hmm. they made the dashboard way closer to uh, the Windows 8 Metro interface, now called the modern UI because Metro turned out to be tar- trademarked. Um, the Who owned Metro? Like the... I think it was just, I think it was train companies. Huh. Uh, okay. But in any case, when it what what's what is going on here? Microsoft has had a long history of poor naming schemes. So let's go through the the history of, of numbers. Right. Um, so there's Windows Windows. There's Windows one. one. There's Windows two. There's Windows two point one. There's Windows three point one. There's re, Windows three point eleven. Windows ninety five. Windows ninety eight. Windows ninety eight SE. Windows NT. Windows two thousand. Windows ME. Windows XP, uh, Windows 7, and Windows 8, and now Windows 10. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they've had a great grasp of like increasing Counting? values. Well, to be fair, there was Xbox and Xbox 360, yeah. and then Xbox One. You're right. That, that There is that more simple progression of, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. There is the point where, well, I really like how they did, because the 360 thing was her parody with the PS3. Yeah. It was like, well... 360 is better than 3. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, 4 just seems lame. Like, you don't want to yeah. think... You, like, well, 4 is ridiculous because it's not the fourth Xbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they couldn't, like... Whereas this is crazy ridiculous because it's, it's not the 10th <laughs> Windows. It's also... I mean, like, Windows 7 wasn't the 7th Windows. It was something like the 9th. So <laughs> it's... It's just, there's no reasonable way that they could justify any number they put on this unless they call it Windows Forever. Um, <laughs> Windows and Robin? <laughs> yeah, window, exactly. Um, so what Microsoft is trying to do here, aside from dumb naming schemes, is have a universal OS across all platforms. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're just gonna like you're just gonna have a folder that says Windows 10, press X, and all of a sudden it just loads up on all your devices. The idea is Windows there will be a version of Windows 10 for every device. And well, it's the same version of Windows yeah. 10 is the point that it resizes itself basically. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of like it's modular, so it mm-hmm. takes pieces out and replaces it. So, for instance, the Metro, the modern UI interface, is going to still be there, um, but in the desktop, it'll just hang around the start menu, right? right? But for the phone, it'll still be a critical part of how you interact with the apps on your phone, or same with a tablet. Yeah. The idea is to hide the aspects that a, a given device doesn't need. So on a desktop, you're not going to need that large t- um, tablet. You don't need the interface. giant stress start menu. You need the regular start menu or the yeah. classic start menu, as it were. And with those live tabs they have from the modern interface over in the corner, whereas on the phone, you probably don't want tiny little icons. Yeah. Now, I have to wonder how much customizability they will offer there in that can you make those things appear on the different devices? I mean, that would be interesting if you could bring up, like, just straight up bring up the desktop mm-hmm. on Windows Phone. I feel like that would be counterintuitive. Sure. Um, but... I Just because... I, I can't imagine the nightmare of having a 7-inch screen and trying to deal with um, the, the Windows Touch interface um, that small. Right. It does seem to feel like the way they were talking it up at least seems sort of like a cross between Windows 7 and 8 yeah. without necessarily like uh, realizing that Windows 7 is a very specialized piece of hardware software and Windows 8 is a very specialized piece of software and a cross between them might not work out the way they're thinking it would. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one dream that Microsoft has been chasing for ages is the idea... So Microsoft has a app problem across all of its devices except Windows, right? Windows is installed basically everywhere. I mean, people, mm-hmm. some people own Macs, but those, those are home devices, more likely. Um, enterprise living situations, most people use Windows. Um, but for the tablet and for the phone, they have to use their own ecosystem. And because of that, they just they can't catch up with Android and um, iOS. It's just there's too many apps on these devices, and Microsoft gets saddled with the worst possible ones. So what they want is they want it so that you make an app for, you make an application and for Windows 10, and it works with all three versions. And you can just get it like, okay, this is, I want to do Photoshop. This is Photoshop for the tablet. This is Photoshop for the, for the desktop. You install it once, and it just flows across all your devices. I have to also wonder... Because Windows 8 had a very large problem of not supporting legacy applications. Yeah. And does if Windows 7 has a more standard architecture, can it, go, can it allow people to support stuff they would have had with Windows 7? Because this is very clearly touted as a clean upgrade for Windows 7 users. Yeah. I, they, they try to say that. I mean, there's often glitches around that. I mean, they, they, for instance, but Windows 8 didn't allow anything to upgrade. It didn't, but you could you could mess with it. Like mm-hmm. you, they're they're always back they're always sure. back entry ways. But 
you really should be doing clean installs. Like, there's no really good reason to to, yeah. to do upgrade. You just carry over so much trash when you when you do those kind of upgrades. The th- anyway, the thing is, when it comes to to these devices, I think that uh, Microsoft just hoping that all the applications just jump with it. Mm-hmm. The idea that hey, look, if there's an application that's relevant to uh, 2014, or I guess 2015, 16, um, it's, you're going to upgrade to Windows 10. You're right. gonna, your Windows 10 is going to be on everything. You're gonna, not going to be able to escape it. It's going to be in your bed. It's going to be in your shoes. It's going to be in your eyes. And if you have an application, like, for instance, your hearing you know, we're aid. We were talking about those boots before. These are Windows shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's slowly getting there. Right, right. So uh, Windows 10 comes out in 2015, which is actually a relatively quick turnaround two and a half years as opposed to standard, I think, three and a half. Yeah. Um, when there's also rumors that Windows 8 users get a free upgrade, to which I can only assume Microsoft respond by <laughs> laughing in their faces. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, be sure to check back in a few months in case we sound like idiots. Yeah, no, you know, this is mindless, this is bondless speculation of which there is no there is no reason to rhyme behind it. We, I just happen to know a lot about Windows. I have a Windows phone. It's you do have a, you are one of two people I know with a Windows phone. Uh, and it, it was not forced upon me. I actively sought out a Windows device. Why was that? My feeling with these devices is always that what you want is competition, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't need that much stuff on my phone. What I want on my phone really is... The ability to connect to the internet, browse the web, phone like you know, call people, maybe Twitter. Yeah, that's, that's secondary. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe call people and then listen to podcasts, right? <laughs> so as long as I have those features, I don't really care about the operating system. The place where I'm going to care about the operating system is a tablet. Like that's <laughs> that's where it's like I this is a bigger screen. I want I care about the apps that are on this thing. When it comes to my phone, I just, I don't care. So my thought is okay. I want. Microsoft to pursue a third competitor in this ecosystem. I want to have at least I want to ha- I don't want it to end up like Windows where it's one operating system across all devices more mm-hmm. or less. Apple's making some great gains every now and then, but you know what, everyone basically uses Windows. Um so my thought was, hey, I don't want I don't want it to be just a- uh, Apple, I don't want it to just be Google. I Microsoft isn't exactly the underdog, but mm-hmm. in this situation it's nice that they're they're making a third a third stringer here mm-hmm. in, in the competition. Idealism, I say. Yeah, that and I, I just don't care. I think it's, yeah, sure. it's, the, it's the real end of sure. that. Speaking of things I don't care about, um, Square has doubled down on Brotown. Yes. So Square's Shinji Hashimoto, the producer of Final Fantasy XV, is not a really big fan of the Western reaction to Final Fantasy XV. Uh, uh, he doesn't really like how Americans have photoshopped the magical fantasy road trip to feature the protagonist driving through driving through drive throughs to Sunset Strip and McDonald's, popular road trip locations. <laughs> Final Fantasy XV's director, Hajima Tabata, on the other hand, thinks it's hilarious. Uh, so they've actually released a whole bunch of high-res assets of the boys in their cars with transparent backgrounds. So it's way easier to Photoshop them into goofy situations. Square Enix is saved. And you know what? I'm taking that a step further. Japanese games are saved. They did We've it. We've done it. Fucking roll out the mission accomplished banner. Yeah. We did it. Phil Jap- Fish is back in video games. He's apologized. Gamergate is over. Thank, thanks, Square Enix. You did it. Well, very quickly, I think we should just say what Final Fantasy XV is. It's, I guess. It's a video game, and it's the 15th version. It's not the 15th. It's a, it's the it's the video game in the Final Fantasy series that they're calling the 15th, in which they recently released a trailer at TGS. Of a bunch of boys driving in a car on their road trip to save a princess or something. Yeah, or the moon. I don't know. <laughs> the princess is the moon, actually. Spoilers. There you go. No. There's a lot of, it's really cool, the idea of just having a road trip RPG. That seems like a really fun game, and I think we discussed, uh, I don't know if we discussed it on, on air, but a common complaint about yeah. Final Fantasy Thirteen was that it was a series of hallways. How do you recontextualize hallways and make them interesting? By making them roads. Right, yeah, because that, like... That, at the very least, adds a scenic element to the place you're going. a scenic element, the theory that you can stop on the side of the road, have a tailgate party, you know, (laughs) listen to drive-time radio. There's a lot of options there. Yeah, so it's also a nice way to doing character moments, right? Mm -hmm. It's a nice way to kind of bring out some of the more uh, lacking elements in the last few Final Fantasy games, which were just so focused on crazy plot Mm -hmm. machinations. But just having, you know, four characters hang out 
for a long period of time. It's just an interesting. It's an, sure. it's an approach Final Fantasy characters. It's what? very it's very humanizing, yeah. and I think it definitely plays to how people reacted to putting them on a cool road trip, yeah. just ha- having a good time with the bros. They already kind of feel like characters in a way, so it's fun to play with them in this way. Obviously, sure, it's good for their advertising, like whatever. But well, like it's not because of like some planned marketing strategy, right? Right. It's them like seeing that people actually like their stuff and just going in their way to say, hey, look, you want to do weird stuff with our game? Go ahead. We'll Let's make it easier celebrate. For- yeah. I like how the producer is not a fan of this, but I think it's very clear. Like, I don't know what Nomura's stance on this is. I have a feeling Nomura wouldn't have made a comment on this if he was still in this position. Yeah. I love Tabata's attitude towards this game, this nightmare, this albatross around Square Enix's <laughs> neck that he is saving. You know, it makes... All, all of this stuff just makes me more optimistic for a game that I previously assumed would be doomed. Like, yep. so, so where do you want the bros to drive through? I mean, the easy one is White Castle, right? And I'm <laughs> sure that's been done. Like, that, that it like, has to be. I, I you know, I passed once through this beautiful beach in Croatia where the water was crystal clear all the way through, and I really think that'd be a beautiful kind of scene for this. Yeah. I also think that maybe putting some um, Marlboros on that beach <laughs> and having them duke it out with the bros would be pretty cool. Maybe beach volleyball. I would also like them to just uh, to drive through the, the long panning shot in the Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I feel about like it would be... <laughs> I've been watching a lot of the West Wing recently, and there's a lot of walk and talk in there. So I yeah. really feel it'd be great if they drove along with the walk and talk. Yeah, it would yeah. really, really give you a sense of the scope of the White House, you know? Yeah, exactly. And or... how busy everybody is. <laughs> I was thinking maybe they can drive through Final Fantasy thirteen. Oh, that would be nice. <laughs> Final Fantasy thirteen three though. Yes. Uh, lightning returns. They can heckle lightning, and she can turn around and say, "I'm on a mission from God." <laughs> That's eighty percent. Like, oh, chill, bro. She that is eighty percent of her dialogue in that game, and I love that game. But <laughs> it's dumb. Beyond all reason, I like that game. Anyway, if you have a place you'd like to see the Final Fantasy crew visit. Uh, I don't know. Send us a tweet. We're at Built to Play. Yep. Or we'll send, definitely print out that tweet, put it in a bottle, and send it across the ocean to Japan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 within our power. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we just have to get to another coast, <laughs> or get really lucky. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if we throw it, I'm pretty sure if we'll you go get around like far. the horn, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, that's it for news. All right, so this week we've been actually skipping out on a bunch of our interviews as we didn't have anything at the top of the show, but we have been playing a bunch of games for our pleasure and yours. Um, So, Daniel, you recently went through Super Smash Bros., uh, for 3DS, I think is the official title. Is the official title? It's a terrible title, but it's a pretty okay game. It's a pretty good game. It's a. I really okay. Smash Bros. 3DS in a vacuum is one of the most asta- out, like astounding games Nintendo's put out in a long time because it is a complete like. It is one of those things where the line between console and handheld is so blurry these days. But it's still super impressive when a game at the quality of Smash Bros. 3DS, which would have been super impressive if it were Super Smash Bros. Brawl on the Wii in 2008. Like it's a. It it. it fe- I, I said in the review that it's. A, it feels. A a little bit like 2001's Melee for the GameCube. It's a bigger game than that, and it's a more impressive game than that in a lot of ways, and it's definitely a prettier game than that. But this game would not have been unimpressive as the Wii entry in the series, and seeing it on a handheld is crazy. Unfortunately, the issues with it are that because it's a handheld game and it's on 3DS, you might not get as much out of the multiplayer aspects of it, which is a big deal for Smash Bros. And, you know, people who have played Smash Bros. since 2001, since Melee, are used to the GameCube pad, which they don't have. Those things aside, and while those are very big, you know, caveats, if you can put that aside, this game is great. But there have been some criticisms, including one that there's the screen is too small. I guess the the 3DS screen just feels small right? for the scale of combat in this game. Um, How was your experience? I've never found my I've never found myself losing my character, which I do sometimes does sometimes happen to me in uh, Brawl in the Wii game. Um, didn't really happen to me in the Wii U one either. I think it's just character outlines seem to be a little thicker, easier to see these days. Um, or my eyes have gotten better in my old age somehow. Uh, but there is a little feature, actually, that they, if you tap your character portrait or anybody's character portrait on the bottom screen, a little uh, box pops up around them, a glowing box, so that you kind of keep your track of yourself. I definitely think that the smaller 
the smaller screen means the action does kind of have to be scaled down. Uh, and nothing really happens that puts the game into slowdown. I never really experienced anything that would, like, cause everything to get, you know, you know, lag or anything. And the game pushes the 3DS to its limit. It can't multitask. The 3DS has a few multitasking apps. It can't do any of that while Smash Bros. is running. Um, and kind of infamously now, uh, Ice, the Ice Climbers, a kind of two-man team character, were cut because the 3DS couldn't handle them. Mm-hmm. So it is pushing the 3DS to its bleeding, ragged edge. But... Um, I've never found the screen being too small for this COVID, but I definitely think that it is better suited for one-on-one matches than it is for four-player matches. I, th- I think that also makes sense, um, given the just the context of the 3DS. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one thing to get four people to around the console on a big screen. It's another to get four people with, with 3DS. Yeah, with 3DSs, unless you're a Japanese man going to his, you know, going to his business office. When it comes to that stuff, there have been that level of criticism, but there is the aspect of customization that has has popped up. So have you messed around with that at all? I really like the customization features. So how it works is that there are two kind of customization things. There are the Me Fighters, which is kind of a make-your-own-fighter. They have three types. Within those three types, they have various moves you can set up for them. There's a lot of variations on the Me Fighter as such with, you know, character costumes, stuff like that. Um, And then there's character customization, which each character can change their special moves. Each character has four special moves, B, B up, B down, B side. They have three variations on each of these attacks. Their standard one, two extra ones. The thing with that is that most characters don't have very different ones. The ones that do are really cool. So, for example, Link has his bomb. Link's bomb is just a bomb. It's the same as it's been every Smash Bros. It's got like a three-second fuse or something. You throw it. It, if it hits something, it blows up. If it doesn't, it's there till it blows up. You can use it for bomb jumping strategies, where you throw it into yourself to make yourself get hit, which, which, which will give you an extra jump. One of his new specials, his custom moves, is called the Meteor Bombs, which, when they hit something, they don't do very much damage, but they apply a Meteor Smash effect. The Meteor Smash effect in Smash Bros. is a rapid gravitational pull that sucks you straight down. If you hit somebody with the Meteor Bomb when they're off the stage, there's no platform underneath them, they fall right off screen and get knocked out. Huh. So the meteor bombs are really cool for high-level strategies. They are weaker. They can't let you do the bomb jump thing because if you do them for bomb jumps, you'll kill yourself. But for, like, playing zoning games and kind of tra- traditional fighting game style, they're really cool. The issue with that is that while I think a lot of the customization options are really great for competitive play, I don't know how much competitive players will adopt them because it's hard, it's hard to say when customization comes to a fighting game – I mean, you know, there is a button in there's a button in there that just clears all that yeah, stuff custom, out. Customization can be totally turned off. You never have to deal with it. It's automatically off for the online mode called For Glory. There's For Glory and For Fun. Right. Uh, for Glory is limited to um, flat stages, no items, one-on-one matches, or team matches. Which is like that sounds just a boring way to play that game. That's actually, by the way, the at least in my experience, the way the online works best. Oh, really? Yeah, the online got a little bit laggy with four players, North American. One on one with North Americans was smooth as silk. Like I didn't notice any lag. There probably would, there, I, would, I probably would have noticed something if I'm a competitive guy who picks up on these things. Um, if there was even one Japanese player in any of my matches, it was unplayable. Oh, the, okay. It would stop and start. It would have to load up. It was. It's not good for international play. Would you would you say that you'd be you were playing on a very a strong internet connection at the time? I was sitting right next to my router. Okay, so, so yeah, it's it seems decent. That just seems like a problem with uh, Nintendo's netcode. Then yeah, it definitely like Japanese like if I had even one Japanese player in a four player match, it would lag as if I was playing a four player North American match. If it was three Japanese players, I just disconnected. Like there was no way I could play the game. Um, but as for the customizations on, like usually in fighting games, you kind of want to be able to predict what your opponent can do based on a certain limited set of things. This, this, that kind of customizing your character kind of throws that into the the water. Right. The thing is though, that there's so few customization options for each character. Well, there are, you know, there are a lot of them in, in the abstract sense, but you know, there, there are many combinations you can do, but there's only three moves, three, you know, three moves per move. Mm -hmm. So realistically, and they don't change that much. Realistically, I think that. You know, competitive play could do a thing where you pick your customizations at the beginning of the tournament and you just don't change them for the rest of the tournament. Right. Where this is just your character. Um, and I could totally see that happening and be really cool. But I also think that for, which I think I mentioned in the review, competitive players will be playing this version for two months until the Wii U version comes out, at which point they'll all graduate to that because they would rather have the more accurate controls. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, in I mean, the it's mean- just the, the Wii U, the game stick on that thing. It's, yeah. just, it's not great. No, the thumbstick's not great, and the Wii U version comes with a GameCube adapter, which is the controller they've used for years at this point. It's the one they want. Right. And it's the one I want, realistically, too. I prefer it just because after 13 years of playing with it, I'm more used to it. But I really have been having a great, great time with it. And one of the really interesting things about the game, and there will be an article on the site about this, is the, the links at which it goes to for Nintendo references. There's an entire stage that is Kirby's Dreamland. 
from the for the Game Boy Advance for Game Boy for the original Game Boy rather the level the beginning of the stage when you start out is the Game Boy start screen that says Game Boy it makes a little ding noise you're on a pea soup green background the entire stage is 2D you can't shift the camera around when you pause That's and nuts. it it starts you on the on Kirby's Dreamland opening screen and takes you like level by level through the game you go through like Castle Lola and the appropriate music plays at each part it's like this is the greatest stage in Smash Bros history not from a playing standpoint playing on it I like it some people might not. I know a lot of people don't like the ch stages that change kind of in the middle. It is so detailed, and it is so much Masahiro Sakurai, the director of the game and the creator of Kirby, patting himself on the back. <laughs> um, and there's there's a there's a postmodernist to Smash Bros, and that's what the article will be about about how Smash Bros is a fundamentally self-aware game, because mechanically so, not in its it also you know in the sense that it knows a video game, it knows a celebration of video games, but its mechanics are you know very self-aware in that they are drawn from Kirby. And it almost feels like an anthropology of itself, right. seeing Kirby put up next to Smash Bros. Because they're the same game in a lot of ways. They move similarly. Um, alternatively, if you don't want to reference that obscure, uh, Little Mac is playable, and he's great. Little Mac also, was, I really enjoy when we when we had that preview event. I was really really enjoying playing as Little Mac. He is my most played character in the 3DS version so far. Like he's great. The new characters seem like to be really good, except for Duck Hunt, which is a dumb. We're stuff. legally not allowed to talk about him, unfortunately. Uh, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Duck Hunt is awesome. <laughs> Duck Hunt is wonderful and one of the most interesting fighting game character designs I've seen in a long time. It's isn't it just the zapper though, the character? It's like a three-man team because you have the dog and he's got a duck on his back, and then some of his attacks set up like targeting reticules, which the you know quote-unquote hunter, somebody who's a zapper, will be shooting. So his side, his smash is like his side smash creates a reticule next to him, his down smash underneath him, his up smash above him. Uh, he has a side B that throws out a clay pigeon, which if you hit B again will be shot by the hunter. Um, one of his attacks is to toss out a tin can full of explosives. Every time you hit B again, it will uh, it, the can will be get shot and flip over. If it hits somebody, it'll explode. If you just keep shooting it, though, it'll explode eventually. It moves it with each flip, and it can go like all kinds of weird patterns with the, with the timing you shoot it at. Yeah, no, I heard that they, that they bring in some random other zapper. Yeah. Uh, related characters. Unfortunately, they don't bring in the most obscure Nintendo shooty guy, which is uh, Sheriff. I Aww. believe they announced him for the Wii U version of the Assist Trophy, but that is Nintendo's oldest character. He's like a guy from the, like the late seventies. That would have been nice. That yeah, been a nice touch. He's in the Wii U version though, so eh. enjoy. Duck Hunt is great. So okay, Smash so you, Bros. You seem real all positive. I really love this game. There are caveats that you have to understand before you purchase it. It's you know forty bucks for what will presumably be two months of entertainment until you buy the next ver you know the upgraded version of it, right. but. I've paid more for less time, and this is really incredibly well made. Yeah. there's You You probably can't go wrong with it. Okay, so... Let's this, talk about something you can go wrong with. Um, well, so I think we're going to have a much... This is a pretty long discussion on mm -hmm. um, Smash Bros., but I, I just really want to get this other game out of the way. Yep. Hyrule Warriors. So you've More been... like Hyrule Snorriers, am I right? Uh, I got I to gotta leave? Um... <laughs> My bus is here. To leave, to kick you off the show. <laughs> it's been nice knowing you. I, I would say that, but it's not. <laughs> Hyrule Warriors is a video game. It's a video game. Hyrule Warriors is the is a game made by the creators of Dynasty Warriors. If you don't know what Dynasty Warriors is, it belongs to a larger series of games in Japan called Muso, where you are a general in an army and you cut down hundreds upon hundreds of dudes until you get to another general at which you kill them, and then you go to another level where you do this at nauseam. Yes. Um, it's basically you press the square button until that's until you stop pressing this until you kill a guy. Right. The no. the idea is you have these kind of basic combos and there's sort of a general strategy if you want to keep these bases and these armed, but you never really have to bother with that because as long as you power through the mission and get to your objective before anything bad happens, which is usually about 30 minutes, you'll make it. You know, there's no problem there, and nothing is the combat's never that complicated. Hyrule Warriors adds kind of a Zelda-y mechanic of a counterattack system. But really, all that managed to do is break up the natural kind of flow of, of a Dynasty Warriors game and make me stomp. And when I stomp and examine and think about what I did is when I get mad. Hyrule Warriors, by the way, does have one thing about it that I didn't mention in the review because it didn't have a place there. It has the jankiest multiplayer I've seen on the Wii U. Well, it, okay, so the multiplayer, from, from what I understand, is... Uh, the second player plays on the Wii U gamepad. The first player plays on the Wii U gamepad. Sorry, the, Wii U, the, second, the first player plays on the Wii U gamepad, and the second player plays on the TV screen. And it just it just slows the frame rate all yeah, the way right Yeah, it cuts the frame rate in half, graphical glitches out the wazoo, characters look terrible when that happens. Like, the game, the game, Hyrule Warriors, for all I can say about it, is a really pretty game. 
and the two-player mode looks atrocious. Um, playing on two different screens is a really nice feature of the gamepad. I don't understand what happened here, because Mario Kart 8 doesn't really suffer that much when you play it four-player four split screen and a fifth player on the gamepad. So I don't know what happened there. Well, I, mean, I think one of the biggest problems is uh, not many people are used to dealing with uh, get um, optimizing on the Wii U. And I don't think like the Dynasty Warriors crew are going to be the ones who care, right? right. They're not like, going to be the ones who go out and have their way to optimize this stuff. But it's not like Nintendo has been... I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't much of a slowdown on Mario Kart, but mm -hmm. there have been reports of sure. like, enough of it that it's noticeable. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think Nintendo has the greatest grasp but that's, on the But again, that's four-player split-screen. Yeah, yeah. This is two screens that you're pushing to. I don't know what happened. Like, it's it's one of the, and it's, it looks... There's a, there's definitely a bit of a frame rate drop with Mario Kart 8, but there isn't this incredible graphical, like, nightmare. Like, jaggy edges everywhere. Anti-aliasing suddenly turns off. Like Doesn't turn into a Kafka-esque art piece. Yeah, it just... It looks bad. Well, it looks like a GameCube game. Hyrule Warriors... It's a sleepy, a fundamentally sleepy game. If you are somebody who really loves Zelda and has never played Dynasty Warriors before, you are probably the core audience for this game. But I can't imagine you're at a point... You're the core audience because it re revisits kind of... It has a storyline, but it ends up revisiting It revisits the... most... Okay. It revisits the three most recent popular Zelda games, which are, say, Ocarina of Time, Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess. There are very few Wind Waker references. There are very few Link to Past references. There are very few Majora's Mask references. It's not a game... It's a game for Zelda fans, but it's not a game for the crazy hardcore Zelda fans like me who kind of get pissed off when their favorite game isn't mentioned. Right. It's a game for people who have played the popular, the big Zeldas and are, you know, into it. It's a populist Zelda history, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And if you haven't played a Dynasty Warriors, then it's probably worth experiencing the once. I don't think it's a very good game. I also don't think that you live in a world where if you're a hardcore Zelda person, you've never played the Dynasty Warriors, because it's been out for decades, and you've played it. All right, and then we've we've talked about this game before to a probably a nauseating extreme. I know I've talked about this to a nauseating extreme, and that's Destiny. Now, the only reason I'm bringing this game up again is because I, I, I am now I am now firmly above level 20, meaning I've sufficiently gotten enough gear and light points that I am level 23. Oh, you're not quite ready for uh, Vault of Glass? No, I'm not ready. I have not put, put that much time into it. Um, so, the stunning thing that I've discovered after it... So, okay, ben, by the way, my, my overall impression is don't play Destiny. <laughs> At least, don't play Destiny for the first 20 levels. But the game continues to be mystifying in the in the way that like I'm just in, I'm just fascinated by this 500 million dollar project that turned out to be so like every time you look at it you got to think like is this really what they wanted to make? Is this was that the was this game the end game? Did something horrible happen? Like well, I think what happened was when you put five hundred million dollars into something, you have to be terrified that it's not going to sell to everybody. So they they made the most bland game imaginable. Mm -hmm. Destiny manages to get a little bit more interesting mechanically once you get to level twenty whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, the problem is it doesn't communicate any of that stuff. So I'm just going to... The, the the main thing I'm going to say is Destiny pro is probably at its most interesting once you start getting into the weirder stuff. If only the weirder stuff was was more engaging. The mm -hmm. prime example is the current public event going on uh -huh. now. I When this podcast goes up, it'll probably just be just ending, if not over. Um, the, the thing is... So there's the Queen's Wrath thing, which is basically the Space Queen is asking you to murder people because she doesn't like him for some reason. And... The way they appear in the game is as bounties. So bounties in Destiny are just like, go to this spot, kill this guy. And usually it just implies like, hey, replay this mission again, which is most of Destiny. Right. So hey, if you, you got to level 20, congrats. You've been replaying a lot of Destiny um, to this point in anyway. This is supposed to be this big public event, right? This massive thing. But on its face, when you just first encounter it, all it is is a list of bounties. Mm -hmm. But you complete one of those bounties, and it suddenly opens up another this this other mission that you can go on. It doesn't tell you that there's this other mission hidden after you do the bounty. Is it a new unique mission, or is it another redo mission? It's an it's an it's it's a, it's not a completely new mission, but it is like it does at least kind of re, it re, the same way that all kind of Destiny levels reuse. Level after level after level, um, uh, environments after environments, but it is like a new context for old levels. Okay, um, and it does provide you with some really good gear, and it actually, it's it's probably the the so one of the problems Bungie has had with this game is that just the sheer upgrade path is insane. Um, the reason 
So for instance, they recently closed down this loot cave. But people were sitting by that cave for hours, like days, just waiting for a legendary item to like bless upon them. And people have basically like... I feel like the loot cave should replace the word Skinner box. Yeah, no, seriously, because in a game where it is a rational choice to sit outside just a single environment and wait for a and single point, item. To, yeah. Point an item and hold a button. Yeah. Which is crazy because that's the thing. Like You're saying a reasonable option. A more reasonable option because you can get more reward out of that than mm. doing basically anything else in the game. I would not fault anyone for going out of their way to sit outside that cave. Now, I know they've recently patched the loot system. Is it any yeah. better? It's... I mean, it's a little better. What's really been happening, to, what I've been seeing is that, so what what happened before was you got way more legendaries. But the legend, so you got these things called engrams. Engrams are basically loot that you have to go back to town to talk to this guy called the Cryptarch, who then says, I found this magic item inside this holodisc, and here you go. Um, is he the one played by Nathan Fillion? No, he is not. I wish yeah. he played. He, the, the, the disembodied voice of one of the narrators who just starts talking inexplicably. When Aren't they all starts. celebrities? They are. Who and is just, that one, though? Um, I'm, gonna I look it, I'm gonna look it up. Keep talking about the loot. But anyway, so what happens is you go up to this guy and he'll give you do a legend. You do a legendary, and it was something like only a third of the time it was giving you legendary loot. Most of the time it was rare, and rare once you get up to like at least like level 23 is kind of useless, um, or it's nothing you want. Like you're usually better off with just stuff you have um, than getting a new rare item. Uh, so what, what's happened now is that they've changed so that all the items that previously, all the previous legendary engrams um, have been demoted down to rares, and there's kind of a new wild legendary engram that's out there. And what I found is that the new legend, the new kind of le- legendary engram where you always get a legendary item or better um, has just been rarer to find. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much like... It's I don't know I don't know what this means for the game as a whole, but basically the end result is it's hard to say when it comes to like is the game better now? I mean I'm not going to this guy I'm not going to the crypt art thinking that I'm gonna get an item. Um, I'm thinking I'm gonna I might get an item and then suddenly reveal to me that it's utter garbage and I have to delete it along with most of my inventory. But it also isn't so the game's not just lying to me, but it also isn't perhaps giving me a great loot cycle that like. Diablo 3 mastered mm-hmm. way back in... Uh, how old is that game? Two Diablo, years now? The, uh, Diablo 3 is two years. I think Diablo 2 had that down, too. Yeah. Like, Destiny's biggest problem, as it continues to be, that it hides all of its good stuff behind weird esoteric systems. Anyway, I'm going to keep playing until I at least get to that... Um, to the good part. To, to the good part. So what you're saying is your overall recommendation is don't play Destiny, but do hire somebody to play the bad parts for you so you can then get to the really cool part. Get to the really... I wouldn't even call it the really cool part. <laughs> I would call it the part that I'm interested in seeing. By the way, in case you were wondering, uh, the Cryptarch is played by Electra's dad from the Daredevil movie. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's... Okay, I'm glad that they went out of their way to have a guy that says, hey, um, <laughs> to be voiced by that, that, that caliber of celebrity. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's it. So I think that's that's what we have for for games. We I think we'll have something with. Uh, oh right, no, you play Persona, Persona, Persona 4, Four Ultimax. Ultimax, the Ultra Suplex Hold in Japan. Yeah. Uh, review forthcoming. It'll be up by the I, I believe a little bit after this uh, episode is up. Mm. Um, in the so far, I'm really liking it. The story mode is a little different. How it used to work is that every character had their own individual story mode, kind of traditional fighting game style. This one's a little more visual novelly. You have paths you take and click on each character. Um, my, in terms of the fighting stuff, one of the cool things they've added is that every character now has a shadow version of themselves. Right. Um, I mean, they've always had a shadow version of themselves, but it's not playable. In here. their hearts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, every character now has a playable shadow version of themselves, which changes kind of their mechanics. You get weaker in terms of damage, but you have a different... Uh, you're, and you don't have the ability to do, go into awakening mode, which gives you an extra super and extra super bar. Um, you do, however, have an ability to go into an auto combo mode, which lets you combo any attack into any other attack. Um, and you also what's it, you also regenerate um, SP super you know super power ability at a higher rate. So they're more dangerous in in a theoretical sense. I think the competitive community is sort of frowned upon them in general, but they're interesting and it's nice to see Kanji make goofy faces at you. Um, the the, th- the other thing that's really weird about it 
So Adachi and Marie, two two of the two of the characters, are a free DLC for the first week, and they become paid later. Adachi's appearance in the story, and spoilers for Persona Four, is not treated with the amount of horror I would have expected. Huh? Because Adachi just shows up, and you're like, Adachi-san, how? It's like, well, okay. First of all, the son, I believe, is usually, I mean, you may know more than I do, but this, it's usually a respectful thing. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call a horrible rape murderer son. <laughs> also, another weird quirk of the story mode this time. So in the pre, in the Persona 4 arena story mode, the Ultimax is actually a sequel. It's not a retelling like most fighting games tend to be. Um, it's not like uh, Street Fighter 4 hyper fighting. Exactly, something. yeah. It's so... In in Persona 4 Arena, all the characters fought in the TV world, which is to say, they couldn't. They none of the harm that gets inflicted upon them applies to the real world unless they die. Right. In this game, you're fighting in the real world, and Naoto uses real guns, which means <laughs> she's just <laughs> she's murdering fools. She's just, well, she's killing these shadow selves, which is okay, but you can't tell which is a shadow in the real. So she draws her real gun <laughs> on regular her friends multiple times. I can't trust anyone. Naoto is the Jack Bauer of the Persona 4 universe. Um, overall, though, the the game has a rematch button now, which was my prime complaint about Persona 4 Arena, which didn't have a... S- it booted you to the menu. It booted you back to characters like every time you finished a match, which meant that my, my, my friends and I played the game with nine, not, you know, nine, you know, best out of nine or whatever. <laughs> best out of ten. That's how we played it, because we didn't have to keep going back to the character select screen. But the, the thing with the versus mode that's really interesting is that I said before, Adachi and Marie are DLC characters. Hmm. Marie is unlocked from the beginning. Adachi and Margaret, the other DLC character, have to be unlocked through playing through the story mode, even if you've already purchased them. Okay. Which is very strange. I don't, like, that just seems... I mean... Because they're I mean, on the menu. It's not like they're invisible. Like, you know they exist. You know you've bought them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that you've always kind of had this problem with fighting games where, for instance, Mortal Kombat tri- the Mortal Kombat 9 tried to go the right way and say, hey, look, we're not going to have... Um, we'll develop these characters afterwards and then sell them to you and mm-hmm. they won't be on the disc. Right. But by not having them on the disc, it created huge um, syncing issues where that game didn't work well online multiplayer for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean... It, for a fighting game, they kind of need just for netcode to work yeah. to have the characters built into the disc and to know in advance. Mm-hmm. It is strange, though, that you do have to go through the whole Speaking thing. Speaking of online, actually, the 360 is, 360 is missing in online mode that the PS3 has. What? It's missing. So the way PS3 ha- the way the PS3 version handles lobbies is that you get to like walk around as the Persona Four and Three characters and walk around Inaba looking for other people. Like other people are represented by their own avatars. You walk around and get into matches. It's really cool. Three sixty version doesn't have any of that. It just has regular lobbies. Apparently, it has something to do with the way XBLA handles lobbies. Atlas just couldn't get it to work. Um, otherwise, though, it's very kind of Persona Four fan servicey in a lot of Persona Four and Three fan servicey and. Speaking as a person who really likes those guys, I kind of hope this is the last time we have that. I know Persona Q is coming out in November, yeah. and I hope that's it for these guys, because I'm kind of sick of them. Yeah, like, it's just, they're over-pumping the same characters over and over again. I'm sick of Vic Mignogna yelling Trismegistus. Who does he voice? Yosuke? Is Jinpei. It? Jinpei? Jinpei. No, Yosuke, the guy who voices Yosuke, also voices the main character of Persona 3. Oh, right. Which it... doesn't come up in this game, but will come up in uh, Q. Okay, that'll be interesting. Yeah. But also, by the way, uh, since Teddy has a new voice actor, Shadow Teddy lost his British accent. I'm sorry. Oh, that's oh, that's depressing. Zero out of ten. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Review so forthcoming. Just a quick summary of the games we discussed. So, the first one was Smash Bros, and you gave that a... Thumbs up. Okay. Um, the second one was Hyrule Warriors. Yeah, thumbs down. And Destiny. N- thumbs down. Unless you can skip to, the, to level 15 or level 20 and decide to torture yourself for a while um and then i mean we don't have a review we don't have yet. an official yet it's looking like a thumbs up though in case you're wondering okay okay so then i think that's gonna be it for reviews that's it for reviews and that's gonna be all for this week i'm producer Armin Bali. and i'm featured editor daniel rosen and we make built to play so if you just check out our website builttoplay.ca, we're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people find the show. We are continuing with our few months on virtual reality. Um, you, we have a whole hub up on the site, and we're going to be having at least two more weeks worth of podcasts on this stuff. Yeah, and at least one more week of articles on this stuff. There is something ready to go in the hopper about the holodeck and kind of gamey interpretations of it. Yeah, so look forward to that stuff. Um, we have another review up on the docket. Anyway, we're um, usually on the air at Scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with new episodes on Saturdays. Um, again, look forward to our vir- look for our virtual reality stuff. It's really great content. Um, and again, Persona 4 Ultimax review forthcoming. Yep. And again, 
It's Smash Brothers good. Destiny Hyrule Warriors bad. Follow us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen and I'm paying Vic Mignogna to play Destiny for me. Thank you so much for listening.